The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, I realize I'm throwing a wrench into some of you, some of your notebooks, if you left your John notebook at home, because you normally hear it second hour to study John. Last week we missed first hour because of my voice, and so we just had John last week. So this week, since we missed first hour because of the snowstorm, I thought that instead of getting into John, we would make up with Galatians this morning. Also, because as I was cranking into John this morning, we're in the critical passage in John 5 dealing with the deity of Christ. A whole new slant of argumentation for the deity of Christ occurred to me about 7.30. And I didn't have time to complete it (laughs) for the first hour. So I thought, well, it would be better for me to complete the study of that doctrine and working out all of its implications rather than come in with it just sort of half-baked. So we will focus on Galatians 5, 1 this morning. And our topic is freedom. The freedom the believer has in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whenever we talk about a subject such as freedom or liberty, we must realize that this is probably, especially today, whether we're talking about spiritual freedom or establishment freedom, political freedom, social freedom, economic freedom, whenever we talk about this word freedom, we have to realize that it's one of the most misunderstood, abused, and overused words in our vocabulary. What most people mean by freedom is not the true sense of the word. What most people mean by freedom is I get to do it my way, and I'm not going to listen to any other authority or anybody else. I'm going to do it however, live my life however I want to live it, and to hell with everybody else. And that seems to be the attitude that most people take about freedom, some sort of personal autonomy, And unfortunately, it's even true in the spiritual life, that a lot of people get the idea that what spiritual freedom means is that since Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all my sins, I can just do whatever I want to do in life and heck with everybody else. And God will forgive me, so it really doesn't matter. And that's what theologians have called antinomianism, which comes from two words, the Greek word anti meaning against, and namas, meaning law, and literally means against the law that there are no absolutes in life, that God's forgiven us everything so we can just do whatever we want to do 
and that is a production of the sin nature. Now, there are all kinds of groups and all kinds of Christians who take a lot of time to talk about freedom. Legalists love to talk about the freedom we have in Christ, but they're going to make sure that you understand just exactly where those boundaries are, and if you're not sure where they are from the Scriptures, they're going to add a lot of different rules to that. And I'm going to tell you how silly legalism gets. About ten years ago, I was uh, studying, working on a doctoral degree at Dallas Seminary, and I met a young man who came from the south somewhere, and he had been pastoring, or he had been an assistant pastor, youth pastor, at a church in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, somewhere in the deep, deep south. And there are a lot of legalists down in the Bible Belt, if you didn't know. And uh, he was at this church, and they emphasized the fact that, that women ought to have long hair, men ought to have short hair, and that, that whenever you come to church, ladies should never, ever, on fear of eternal damnation, wear slacks. They had to always wear a dress. Always. At all times. Not just at church on Sunday morning, but all the time. So much so that when he was going to take the youth group on a ski trip, the young ladies in the youth group had to wear a dress over their bib overalls on the ski slope. Now, isn't that just absurd when you think about it? And yet that is the length that legalists go to in order to try to uh, maintain some appearance of spirituality. And in fact, it is a destruction of the spiritual life. It shows that they don't understand anything about grace and that they don't understand at all the concept of the liberty that we have in Christ. Now, in our study of Galatians, as we come to chapter 5, we have been, as it were, climbing a hill, a logical hill from chapter 1 through chapter 2, which talked about, uh, which culminated in Paul's tremendous argument of justification by faith alone from 2.16 down to 2.21. That established the principle of entrance into the plan of God, phase 1, which we have here on the overhead chart, that we are saved from the penalty of sin. This is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, phase 1. How is a person saved? Paul answered that succinctly to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not believe and repent or repent and believe. It's not believe and be baptized. It's not believe and change your life. It's not believe and uh, make sure that you have a life of good works that demonstrate that you have saving faith. It's not commitment to Christ. It's not even inviting Jesus into your heart. That's a real common misrepresentation of the gospel today. Taken from Revelation chapter 3, the passage that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Except if you carefully analyze the passage, it's talking to believers. It's not talking to unbelievers. And so that passage has to do with fellowship with the Lord and does not have to do with salvation. Salvation, justification, phase one, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Justification by faith alone. Then in chapter 3, the apostle shifts gears. He begins to talk about what it means to live the spiritual life. Phase 2, saved from the power of sin. Now this is very important for us to understand this because this is the backdrop for 5.1. And all through chapter 3 and 4, we have been walking through this very precise logical presentation of the apostle. 
as he has walked through the Old Testament with Abraham, understanding that Abraham was saved on the basis of faith alone, justified on the basis of faith alone, the promise of the uh, unconditional covenant of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of the Holy Spirit, walking through the whole concept of adoption and inheritance through chapter the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4, and then culminating in our last study, which was a couple of weeks ago, using the analogy of the bondwoman, the slave woman, Hagar, versus the free woman, Sarah. Sarah was Abraham's wife. The slave was Hagar. They tried to solve the problem of their infertility and the promise of God to provide a son through using Hagar, the slave woman, as a substitute wife in order to raise up an heir, a child and heir to Abraham. That was not God's intention. God was going to perform or to uh, fulfill his promise through a supernatural birth, demonstrating the uniqueness of the promise and uniqueness of the new race that was going to spring from Abraham's loins through his son Isaac, who had not only a supernatural physical birth, but a supernatural spiritual birth. And so in that last section, Paul draws the contrast between Hagar, the slave woman, and Sarah, the free woman. Hagar, the slave woman, represents Mount Sinai and the law. Sarah, the free woman, woman, represents Mount Zion and grace. The contrast, therefore, is one of absolutes between the law and grace. And as as it were, he he is saying through that analogy, you have to make a decision. Are you going to live like a child of the slave woman or like a child of the free woman? Are you going to live on the basis of law or on the basis of grace? And then he builds this to a crescendo. All of this that he has said to this point leads to the incredible doctrines on the spiritual life in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is like the plateau. We've been walking up this staircase step by step, and now we hit chapter 5, and this is one of the most important and crucial chapters in all of the New Testament because it is here in this one chapter that we get one of the best overviews of the unique spiritual life of the church age. And it starts with this verse, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, I understand, I think, the King James Version has a little different translation, reverses the clauses, and therefore screws up the emphasis that we find in the original Greek. It says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke, to a yoke of slavery. Now, that's the thrust of the uh, translation in the New American Standard, which is a fairly good translation, but we have to take the time to do a little exegesis. Now, for those of you who haven't been around a while, and for those of you who've been around a while but have forgotten, the reason we stop and do some detailed exegesis and analysis as we go through these passages is because so often, if we just run through the verse at sort of a superficial glance at what appears to us to be the surface meaning, we miss the real sense and substance of a particular passage. And especially when we come to such a crucial doctrine as our liberty in Christ, we must stop and analyze this very, very carefully. It is this verse as sort of the the crux of Galatians that has given rise to labeling Galatians the Magna Carta of the spiritual life. For it is here that we have outlined for us the true nature 
of our freedom in Jesus Christ. So in the Greek, the verse begins with the phrase, the dative feminine singular of the word eleutheria. looks like this in the Greek. Eleutheria. The accent is over the iota there. It's spelled E-L-E-U-T-H. I left a letter out. T-H-E-R-I-A. This is the basic word that means freedom or liberty. It refers to the status of being free and of possessing freedom. Now, it is used in this particular case with the article... In the Greek. Now, I remind those of you who've been with us a while that the article in the Greek is is very different from the article in English. Now, in English, the, we call it a definite article because it's it. If you don't have it, then the word is indefinite. So we always have to call it the definite article, and it's the word the. Now, in Greek, you don't call it the definite article because in its absence, the word is not necessarily indefinite like it is in English. There, the article and the use of the article in the Greek is very complex. Master's theses and doctoral dissertations have been written about it, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to focus on that this morning. Just say that the thrust of the article here, this is a very difficult syntax in this passage. For one thing, you have... This word eleutheria is the noun, and the verb eleutherao, Christ has set us free, is a cognate. That means it's the same word, it's just a different form. You have the verb and the noun, the same basic root, the same basic root meaning, and normally when you have that, what is called a cognate dative, because eleutheria is in the dative, it is used in an adverbial sense. But that makes no sense in this passage. So what you have here, you have to really delve into a lot of technical material and discover that what we have here is a dative, probably of destination, possibly of sphere, that it is for the destination of freedom that Christ has set us free, and the article is used to restrict the sense of freedom, sort of the sense of this freedom, which indicates the freedom that we're talking about in the context of the epistle. It's not just any kind of freedom. We're not talking about political freedom. We're not talking about different applications necessarily of spiritual freedom, for example. We're not talking about social freedom or economic freedom. We're talking about freedom contextually as Paul has laid it out and the contrast between grace and being a child of the free woman versus law and a child of the bond woman. So the issue here is going to be freedom related to freedom from, from slavery. Now, before we get any further, we need to define what we mean by the word freedom. And I want to read to you from Webster's Third International Dictionary, basic meanings of freedom. It means the quality or state of being free, as in, A, the absence of necessity coercion or constraint in choice or action. B, liberation from slavery 
or restraint from the power of another. And that's the main idea that we see here in Galatians. It is the this sense of liberation from slavery or restraint from the power of another. And we need to ask that question, what power? What is the slavery we are freed from? What is the restraint or power that we are freed from? And see a closely related idea, the quality or state of being exempt or released, usually from something onerous. Now, synonyms are freedom, liberty, and license. And I thought this was interesting. Freedom has a broad range of application from total absence of restraint. That almost borders on the idea of anarchy. And that's the way some people want to take freedom in the spiritual life. Boy, I'm free now. I can just do anything. I can just confess my sins. God's going to forgive me, so it really doesn't matter what I want to do. And that borders on the third idea, which is license. Freedom has a broad range of application from total absence of restraint to merely a sense of not being unduly hampered or frustrated. Liberty, which I prefer to use in translating Eleutheria, which is the way the King James translated, liberty suggests release from former restraint or compulsion. And that's the nuance that we have in this passage. It is release from former restraint or compulsion. License. Pay attention to this. License implies freedom specially granted or conceded and may connote, notice this, it may connote an abuse of freedom. And you see, unfortunately, that's what happens in many cases is people want to abuse the grace of God, take advantage of the grace of God and abuse their freedom. Now, someone has noted, and I think accurately, accurately, that you're not really preaching the grace of God if somebody isn't taking advantage of it. Now, think about it. You're not really teaching the grace of God if somebody isn't taking advantage of it. Now, the trouble is, with self-righteous legalist type types, they're afraid that somebody is going to take advantage of the grace of God. And so they want to step in and, make, and protect the honor of God by imposing a lot of rules and get involved in people's business and start uh, interfering with their life and telling them how they ought to live their life just so they don't take advantage of the grace of God. But you see, that's interfering with the dictates of the Supreme Court of Heaven. That's God's responsibility, and believe me, God is certainly capable of taking care of things when uh, we run run into taking or start taking advantage of His grace. God's going to deal with us, and, and it's just typical of every immature baby believer to take advantage of the grace of God. And too often what we find is mature believers sometimes get the idea that they need to run around and start, start making all the baby believers toe the line with a lot of artificial rules and regulations that don't come out of Scripture. And this is important. Just think about it when you were young, if you can remember back that far, or in watching your own children, is when you leave the house and all of a sudden they have that sense of, the lifting of all restrictions. What do they do? They take advantage of it, don't they? I mean, that's just characteristic of being a kid. That's characteristic of being immature. And so when we see baby believers taking advantage of the grace of God and using 1 John 1, 9 as a license, what happens instead of getting all caught up and isn't this terrible and, and what are we going to do and we need to straighten this out? Well, babies are babies. That doesn't mean we're um, justifying their actions. 
It's we're recognizing reality. The babies are going to be babies, and they're going to take advantage of the grace of God. And if they stick around long enough and hear enough of the Word of God, they're going to recognize that that's wrong. That when you confess your sins, and at the same time you're holding back, or the subtext is, God, I, I did such and so, and what you're not stating is, yeah, and I'm going to do it again just as soon as I get the opportunity, that uh, I don't think you ever really get recover fellowship because you're sinning in the very way that you're abusing confession. You can, you can confess it, and, and if there is forgiveness, it's just for a nanosecond that you're in fellowship because, let's face it, your attitude is one of arrogance and independence, and you don't care anyway, so you're, you just sort of bounce in and out. And remember, to advance in the spiritual life means that you have to spend time in fellowship under the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not just going to happen. Confession doesn't do anything other than gain, gain um, uh, recover fellowship with God, restore the filling of the Holy Spirit, and put you back in that position where you can grow. It doesn't cause growth. It merely restores you to a position so you can grow. But if you immediately are out of fellowship again, you haven't grown just because you have uh, admitted your sins to God. You were forgiven of those, but there's still divine discipline. And just because we're forgiven doesn't mean... Now, this is an interesting point. In light of all the, uh, to borrow a phrase used a hundred years ago, in light of the recent political unpleasantness, people have forgotten or confused about the relationship of forgiveness and consequences. You see, forgiveness is a relational concept. I can forgive you. If you do something to me, let's say of a criminal nature, uh, assault, battery, murder, something heinous, I can personally forgive you, but that does not resolve the legal issues of committing the criminal act. There are still consequences. If someone were to go out and commit murder, They can confess the sin to God as David did after he conspired to have the life of Uriah the Hittite taken. When David confessed his sin, even though he had hurt many, many people, when he confessed his sin, he said, Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Sin is an issue between us and the Lord. It may affect a lot of other people, and we may need to go to those people, and we may need to... Uh, uh, ask for their forgiveness and we may need to apologize and we may need to utilize good matters and manners and exercise some humility in the issue and recognize and accept blame and our own fault. But that's different from our relationship with God. When it comes to our relationship with God, we need to admit or acknowledge our sinfulness and that does not necessarily remove consequences. When God forgives us, He has three options. He can completely remove the divine discipline. He can lessen the divine discipline. Or He can maintain the divine discipline at the same rate of intensity. But now, because you are back in fellowship, you are under the filling of the Holy Spirit, you can apply doctrine. And so now that suffering for discipline is going to be uh, transformed into suffering for blessing. And you are going to respond to that discipline through the use and application of the stress busters, the ten problem-solving devices, faith, rest, drill, occupation with Christ, grace orientation, 
etc., and you are going to be able to transfer that discipline and utilize that as a means for advancing you in the spiritual life. Now, that does not mean, well, let's go sin so I can get under some divine discipline so I can, so I can go forward in the spiritual life because, frankly, that's a pretty miserable way to advance your spiritual life is to try to deal with a divine discipline. There is discipline for our failures. And just because we have forgiveness doesn't mean that the consequences are removed. Now, freedom that we have here in this passage is freedom in the sense of liberty, the release from former bondage to the law, and it's not a license to engage in whatever behavior we, de- we desire. Since this is such a difficult concept for us to understand, I want to take the time to analyze what the Bible teaches about it under the concept of the doctrine of spiritual freedom. Now, we need to remind ourselves a minute of what we mean by doctrine. Some people think doctrine is just sort of an abstract category of thinking about God, that this is something theologians do or seminary students do when they go off to wherever they go, their ivory tower, and they sit and they argue all these little fine points that to a lot of people seem like a lot of abstract nonsense, but it doesn't seem to relate to everyday life. Yet all theology ultimately affects how you think about God how you think about man, how you think about God's relationship to man, your relationship to God in spiritual life. It may not be evident to you. For example, it may take a while before you realize in the doctrine of lapsarianism, for example, or in the Council of Divine Decrees, that that really has an impact on your life. But it does. It, it, as you understand certain things, it's advanced doctrine. So if you don't know what they, those things are, don't worry about it right now or get distracted trying to figure out what those words mean. Doctrine is something that is eminently, in the Scriptures, it is something that is eminently practical. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is breathed, is God-breathed, and is profitable. That means it is for your benefit, profitable, and then it lists four categories in which every Scripture is profitable. What's the first? Doctrine. From the Greek word didaskalos, which literally means teaching. Teaching. Any teaching or instruction from Scripture. That's what doctrine is. So when we take the time to study a particular doctrine, what we are doing is we are categorizing or classifying a particular subject, and then we are bringing to that subject that study everything the Bible teaches about that particular subject or topic, and how that relates to the thinking and production in the spiritual life of the believer. So when the Bible is written under the doctrine of progressive revelation, that God didn't just dump it all out into Abraham's lap or Moses' lap or Paul's lap. It was given incrementally, a little here, a little there over time. And the canon of Scripture was not completed until about 95 A.D., And it was only after the canon was completed that man could have a full picture of the plan and purpose of God. Now, when we come to the Scriptures, we look at it. We've gotten this collection of information that God's given us, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And we look at those books and we take apart the subject matter and we classify it because like in any other arena of life, 
we understand things and we learn things through a process of categorization and classification. That's how we store things in the memory banks of our soul so that we can recall it and use it in whatever area it is, whether it has to do with uh, auto mechanics or uh, biochemistry, medicine, whatever it may be, we categorize and classify material so that we can draw on it and utilize it later on. So that's why we do this. And in any particular passage, you just have some information given about that topic. And so we want to bring to bear on this passage all that the Scripture says about freedom because this is such a, a crucial, crucial doctrine. Now, there's a little caveat we always need to be aware of when we're studying a doctrine. There is a tendency when you study things topically to become divorced from Scripture. By that I mean all of a sudden you say, okay, our topic's freedom. Well, you start bringing to that word or to that category a lot of information that is extraneous to Scripture. And whenever you study a doctrine, you always have to start with the Scripture and let the Scripture define the terminology and give you all of the information. For it is the Word of God that is alive and powerful. It is the Word of God that is sufficient. That's why sometimes we get in a hurry and we have to go through a doctrine and I will just, by way of review, read off the points and give you Scripture. And that's good and hopefully... You are going home with that, and you are taking time in your personal Bible study to sit down and look at those passages. But I'm a realist, and I know that that doesn't happen very often, and that what happens is that you go home and you have your notes, and you might be aware of what one or two of those passages are, but you don't really take the time to study every one. So we need to look at some crucial passages here. The Bible must always be our starting point and defining ground for understanding any subject. We can't just go off and get and start introducing any concept we want to into a subject, and that's the danger of doing topical studies, is you start getting away from the Scriptures. So we want to make sure we understand just exactly what the scriptures, Scripture says. So we're going to start off the doctrine of liberty, Christian liberty. Point number one, from what... Are we set free? When we come to this passage, we have to ask that question. From what are we set free? Now, let's take note of the context in Galatians. First of all, Christ redeemed us. That means He bought us. He paid a price for freedom. That's what redemption is. He redeemed us from the curse of the law in 3.13. We are all imprisoned by sin, that's the Greek verb sunklino in 3.22, which is translated shut up, and that's a poor translation. It means imprisoned, as we saw when we went through there. We're imprisoned by sin. Third, we're in bondage to the law. The Scripture says we're guarded or kept in custody by the law, 3.23. We're said to be enslaved to the law as a child to the pedagogos. That was the slave in the household who oversaw the upbringing of the young child who... It, by, in, in all um, uh, practicality, was a slave to the slave in 324. We're said to be a slave to religion in 4.8. And we, there's the analogy of the children of the slave woman, Hagar, in 4.22 to 31. So we are not free. We are born in slavery, and we see two or three different categories of slavery in Galatians. Slavery to the law, slavery to the sin nature, and slavery to religion. So when we ask the question, 
uh, what have we been set free from, we need to go back to our chart of the plan of God and that we are free from the penalty of sin. This is eternal condemnation, uh, the sentence of eternal death in the lake of fire, phase one. We are also freed from the power of sin, phase two, and we are freed, we will be freed eventually when we are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. We will be freed from the presence of sin in a glorified state. There will no longer be a sin nature and we will no longer struggle with sin. So we are freed from the penalty of sin, phase one, and phase two, which is the spiritual life. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God has given you a unique spiritual life. And that spiritual life, the purpose for that is to live out your freedom from the power of sin, to learn how not to be controlled in this life by the power of sin, and that is what we call sanctification, a life that is set apart to the service of God, and then phase three, freedom from the presence of sin. So point number one is that we are set free from slavery to the law and slavery to sin according to the context of Galatians. Point number two, freedom was secured by Christ's completed or finished work on the cross. Freedom was secured by Christ's finished work on the cross. This is the significance of the main verb in this first clause, Christ set us free. It's the aorist active indicative of eleutherao. And we always take a verb, look at it, eleutherao, E L. E-U-T-H-E-R-O-O. And we parse it. A parsing means to break it down into its grammatical parts of tense, of voice, or tense, mood, and voice. It's aorist tense, active voice, and indicative mood. Now, we don't have an aorist tense in the English, but this is usually just translated as a simple past, although the aorist, uh, technically does not have a temporal nuance to it. It just simply refers without indication of progression or, or beginning or end and simply refers to an act that occurred in the undefined past. The active mood means that Christ performed the action and we receive the action. He's the subject of the verb. Christ set us free. He did all the work. We don't do any of it. That's the significance of the active voice here. Christ did it all. We don't do anything. Freedom is part of our uh, of the gift of salvation. Indicative mood is the mood of reality, the mood of doctrinal reality that this has been accomplished in the past and it is real even if we do not experience it. So it has been accomplished in the past. That's the thrust of the grammar here. Jesus Christ set us free through his death on the cross. Now how did this take place? took place, or the description of how it took place, is found in Romans chapter 6, which is a phenomenal exposition of what Christian liberty is all about. So turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and we will at least get through this much in our study this morning. Probably have to come back next week to complete the study of freedom. This is crucial. There's some phenomenal stuff here. Now, I don't have time to exegete, and I'm not going to take the time to exegete every aspect of 
Romans chapter 6. That's 23 verses, and that would take a couple of months. We don't have time to do that, so we're just going to hit the high points. Now, the context is that Paul has just explained. See, there's a lot of similarity between what Paul says in Romans and what Paul says in Galatians. Now, they're written to different groups of Christians, and they're written for different purposes to deal with different subjects. Galatians was written first. It was the first of the Pauline epistles. Romans was written several years later and reflects a much more mature thought on many of these doctrines. So, a lot of times where we have something briefly given... In Galatians, we can look at it in a lot more detail in Romans to really understand what Paul is talking about. So he starts off after, after a discussion of justification by faith alone in chapter 4 and reconciliation in chapter 5 and the origin of sin. He concludes by saying that in verse 521 that just as sin reigned in death, that is spiritual death, Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the thrust of his argument has been this. Because there was sin, God was able to display his grace. That's what he's saying. Oh, well, if sin gives God the opportunity to to show his grace, then let's go out and sin all the more so that we can give God even greater opportunity to give us grace. And Paul responds to that by saying in verse 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. Meganoida in the Greek, which is about the strongest negation you can have. No. Never. That is a false application of the principle. That is going to an extreme, and that is not at all what I am trying to say. That's what, what Paul, Paul's emphasis here. And then he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? This is what the rest of the chapter is going to explain is this powerful question he asks. How shall we who died to sin still live in sin? Let's paraphrase this a little bit on the basis of the Greek, analyze it briefly. How shall we, that is we believers, that's you and me, how shall we believers, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's who he's talking about. How, how shall we who died to sin? The relative clause tells us that every single believer has died to sin. Now let me ask a rhetorical question of you. I don't want any hands to go up. Time for you to keep a good poker face. And not let on. How many of you have sinned this morning? Well, if the question is, how shall we who die to sin, if that meant that we don't sin anymore, then we've got a problem because I would suggest that every one of us have sinned at least a little bit this morning. In one way or another. And if you had to drive in any kind of traffic this morning, then I'm sure that you... Had to take a little extra time before communion, perhaps, to make sure you were in fellowship. That's why I I like living so close to the church now. (laughs) When we were living over there in Baltic and had to come down 164 every morning, and I was running late, and there were always three or four farmers in front of me driving 35 (laughs) miles an hour. I'd have to spend half the way, all the time coming and all morning long getting back in fellowship, but... We don't have that problem anymore. 
How shall we who die to sin? What does it mean to die to sin? You see, the Bible talks about all kinds of different categories of death. And the first thing that pops into our mind when we think of death is physical death. But the Bible talks about five or six different categories of death. There's physical death, there's spiritual death, there's sexual death, there's carnal death, there's eternal death. I always have to ask the question, what is death and what is the significance of death here? And that means separation. We who die to sin still live in it. Now, the implication of this question, for those of you who are dealing every now and then with somebody who's fallen into the lordship heresy or seems to think of that Christians can be perfect or that after you're saved, you're not going to be quite as sinful as you were before you were saved. You know, it's amazing the superficiality of most Christians. They think that, and it's very popular today to think that when you're saved from sin, that means that the sin nature is just not as bad as it was before. That's what they think regeneration does. Now, I'm getting off track here, but I want to make sure you understand this. The Bible says, Jesus said to to Nicodemus, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. What is dead? That's the question that I ask people. What is it that's dead that has to be born again? Because when you get to the doctrine of regeneration, there's all kinds of fuzzy thinking out there. What is it that's born again? Well, you're, you're given new life. That's what they're You're just given new life. Well, what's given new life? Is your soul given new life? Well, it was already alive. The soul wasn't dead. Is the physical body given new life? No, you're going to get a resurrection body, but it's not the one that's, you know, it's not given new life. It's not dead. It's alive. What is it? Well, see, we're born, well, you're given spiritual life. Okay, what is that? That's the human spirit. Well, okay, if you're given a new human spirit, see, they don't think it through precisely. You have to to be precise. See, the majority of fuzzy-thinking theologians out there have adopted in the last 10 or 20 years the notion that man is pu- the scriptural positions that man is purely dichotomous. Now, there's one of those big words again. You know, that's the fun thing about studying the Bible is you may not go anywhere in your spiritual life, but at least your vocabulary ought to increase. Dichotomy means two parts. Trichotomy, three parts. Adam was created with three parts, body, human soul, human spirit. When he disobeyed God, God said, when you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? You will certainly die at that moment. Well, something happened. He didn't lose his soul. He didn't lose his physical body. What happened? He died spiritually. He could no longer have a relationship with God. He didn't have a human spirit anymore. And it's real clear from Romans chapter 8, verse, I think it's, I just ran across this the other day. You know, every now and then you read a passage for the millionth time, and it sort of slaps you right between the eyes. And it's about down in um, um, uh, verse 15, 16. um, Oh, I don't know. I can't remember it now. But somewhere in there really focuses on the fact that we receive a spirit and it's a human spirit at the moment of salvation. Well, we won't go there. I'll come back to that another time. But the fact is that we receive something. Something is born again. And what is it? It is a human spirit. Regeneration does not mean the sin nature is not going to be as bad anymore. Regeneration means that you've been given a human spirit which gives you the capacity to have a relationship with God and the capacity to understand eternal truths in the Scriptures. 
That's what the human spirit does. It works in conjunction with the soul. The human spirit doesn't have mentality and volition. That's in the soul. So the human spirit allows the soul to understand the things of God and to have a relationship with God. And when we died, to, to, to we were born spiritually dead. And what this verse says is, how shall we who die to sin still live in it? So at the moment of salvation is the reference here, and it's talking about the fact that we are separated from the authority of the sin nature at salvation, but the implication is that we who died to sin can still live in it. That means you can be just as rotten, just as sinful, just as immoral, unethical, and criminal after you're saved as you were before you were saved. In fact, there's nothing you can do you couldn't do as an unbeliever, or nothing you can do as an unbeliever, that you can't do as a believer. Every believer can be just as horrible and unethical and sinful and immoral as any unbeliever. In fact, many believers are worse because they are on negative volition, they're under divine discipline, they have uh, gone into all kinds of soul rebellion and emotional rebellion in the soul, and they're much more miserable than they ever were as an unbeliever. And in, in, in consequence and in reaction to that, they're committing all categories of sins that they never committed before they were saved. So some of the worst people that you'll ever meet, some of the most untrustworthy people that you will ever meet in this life are believers. Now, I hope that doesn't shock you. That shocks a lot of people. But some of the worst pe- people, and you know, it's so superficial. Some Christians say, well, I, I got a Christian yellow pages. I don't know if they have that up here. In some parts of the country, they have these Christian yellow pages, and I'm going to go there because that mechanic is a Christian. Well, I don't care what his relationship to God is. I want a guy who's going to be able to fix my car. Just because he's a believer doesn't mean he's a good mechanic. And there's this real shallow, superficial, naive view among Christians that uh, just because they're a believer, they're going to do a good job, and that's certainly not true. So the implication of this verse is that we who died to sin certainly can continue to sin. And then verse 3, or do you not know, reminder, little repetition of doctrine, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? Here's an important phrase we need to look at in in the Scriptures here. The, The main verb here is, The aorist passive indicative of baptizo looks like this in the Greek. English is B-A-P-T-I-Z-O. And it means to dip, plunge, or immerse. Now, back at the time of the Reformation, when after a thousand years of sprinkling had uh, controlled the church, and baptism had become identified with, because of the unity of church and state. Baptism was virtually an initiation rite into citizenship. When uh, they started translating these passages into English, they couldn't translate this word because that was considered not only heresy, but because of the unity in church and state, it was also treason. That's why they used to burn people at the stake and, and drown them because when they became Baptists and believers in, in believers' baptism and immersion, is because they had confused the, the, the spiritual realm with the temporal realm, and, and initiation into the church was also initiation into the state. 
So when you started criticizing that, it was not only a, a religious issue, a spiritual issue, it was also a political issue. It was considered treason. So they couldn't translate it, so they had to transliterate it, and they just transliterated it, baptism. And began a lot of confusion. And every time anybody hears the word baptism, they immediately think of water. Except there are eight different baptisms in the Scripture, and not all of them include water. In fact, water is involved in only one or two because the significance of baptism is identification. And you are identifying it with something else. In the, in the ancient Greek army, the new soldiers, before they went to battle, they would kill a pig and drain out all the blood into a bucket, and they would come by and they would take their spears and dip the spears points into the blood to identify it. And it was using the same verb, baptizo, to identify it with blood in preparation or initiation for battle. So baptism has the idea of initiation and identification. And when it says here, we have been baptized into Christ, we have an important phrase, ace Christon, ace plus the accusative of Christ, E-I-S is a preposition, and then the word for Christ in the Greek, which means the anointed one, which is a translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. And as a title applied to Jesus Christ, we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, the reason this is important is because this gives us the clue as to what kind of baptism we're talking about. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, we studied the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, another doctrine that has confused a lot of believers. That verse reads, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Well, the phrase baptized into Christ is the same phrase we have here in Romans 6.3, ace Christon, and therefore comparison of Scripture with Scripture tells us that the kind of baptism in view here in Romans chapter 6 is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, which takes place at the moment of salvation. Now, here is a chart of the top and bottom circle that we use to relate our positional realities and our daily experience. At the moment of salvation in Jesus Christ, we are immediately identified with Jesus Christ. That's the thrust of the top circle here and describes our positional realities. This is what's true, whether you experience it or not, whether you believe it or not. The Word of God says all of these things happen to you at the moment of salvation, and they are yours forever. It's an eternal relationship that can never be severed. Now, the bottom circle, which we'll get to in a few minutes, is our experience, our day-to-day walk with, with the Lord based on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the means by which we are placed into union with Christ is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to this chart in a minute. And this is what is called... We defined it there with the term positional realities. It is called positional truth. The doctrines that relate to our position in Jesus Christ. And positional truth is defined as, at the moment of faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters the believer into union with Christ through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Because of this new status in Christ, the believer's eternal relationship to God can never be severed. That's eternal security. 
You can never lose your salvation. You did nothing to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. And let me tell you something. If somebody tells you, pay attention to this, because I know some of you are out there trying to witness to people and explain some doctrine to some people who go to churches where they're told they can lose their salvation. If you think you can do anything to lose your salvation, then somewhere, hidden in their understanding of doctrine and their view of salvation, they think they'd do something to be saved. Now, it may not be evident at first. You may have to dig a while. You may have to ask a lot of questions. But if you can do something to lose your salvation, somewhere you're doing something to get it and keep it. And what we've learned in Scripture is that faith plus anything negates faith. And if you think you're saved by works, you're not saved at all. It's faith alone and Christ alone or nothing. That's positional truth. Now, this is further subdivided into two categories of retroactive positional truth. That means Retroactive means it goes back in time. Retroactive positional truth. And current positional truth. Now, Romans 6, 4 de- describes retroactive positional truth. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. Because of our identification with Christ on the cross, that's the thrust of baptism. By means of the Holy Spirit, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So that the result of that, being identified with His death, the sin nature is crucified with Christ. That's where we're going. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 6. We have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk, and that is a subjunctive mood. It is dependent upon your volition whether or not you actually do walk in newness of life. So what is we ask, ask the question, what is this newness of life? It's freedom from enslavement to the sin nature. Before you were saved, you had no option but to follow the dictates of your sin nature. There was no alternative. Remember, the sin nature not only produces sin, but it also produces human good. So much that is done in the world is done as good, is a product of the sin nature, and is not a product of the Holy Spirit at all. It has relative goodness. Then verse 6, verse 5 says, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, an adverbial participle of cause, because we know this, that our old self was crucified with Him for the purpose of our body of sin, that is, that our body of sin, that is, the sin nature, might be done away with, future tense. In other words, this is how we're going to learn how to do away with the power of sin in our day-to-day life that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be, what? Slaves to sin. Now, the opposite of slavery is freedom. No longer be slaves to sin. Positionally, we are free. This is the top circle. Positionally, we have freedom up here in our union with Christ. Positionally, we have freedom, but experientially, you may still be living in bondage to the sin nature. Now, To realize this freedom entails two things. First of all, your volition 
And secondly, some knowledge upon which to act. You have to know what the options are so that you can activate your volition. And now verse 7 says, For he who has died, that is, died to sin, that happened because of your identification with Christ on the cross, you died to sin, he who has died to sin is freed from sin. My, my, my. There's our concept of freedom, right? Wrong. Why? It's not what it says in the Greek. See, we've just gone through all this doctrine of freedom. We said the Greek word is eleutheria. Guess what the verb is there? He who has died is freed from sin. This is the perfect passive indicative of the Greek word dikaiao. Now, those of you who have been around a while been through this study, you know that that's not a word that deals with freedom. That's the word for justification. That's the word for righteousness. What a horrible translation. You know, I just don't see how some of these things ever get into print. For he who has died, and it's a perfect tense, which indicates a past, the present reality of a past action. Because we have been identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection... An action took place in the past. We were justified with results that go on for all eternity. He who has died has been justified, has been declared righteous from sin. In other words, sin is no longer an issue in the spiritual life because the penalty was paid completely by Jesus Christ. Now, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, this is the principle. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with Him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master of Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an analogy that Paul is using here, and it's very simple. He says, Christ died and was raised to a life to God. So on the one hand, you have Christ's death, and He was raised to a life with God. The analogy is that you as a believer died with Christ, therefore you are to live a life for God. Because you died... Because Christ died and He is now living a life with God and for God, you died with Christ, so you need to be living a life for God. That's the thrust of the argument. And we're able to do that because we are dead to sin. That's freedom. Sin is no longer a slave. We still have a sin nature. We're still going to sin. We're still going to struggle with sin and struggle with temptation. But the point is that sin does not have to be a master over us. We're set free at salvation from sin, and positionally we have freedom, and we are slaves of righteousness. That's the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 6. Now, it goes on and says, Therefore, the conclusion, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but grace. 
then skip down to verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, that is, as an unbeliever, you became obedient from the heart, that is, the right lobe of the soul with which you believed and trusted Christ as your Savior, to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been what? Here's our concept. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. What's the point? Positionally, you are now a slave of righteousness, and we need to start living like it. Because we are now slaves of righteousness because of our position in Christ, we need to start living like it. Now that is all point number one under the doctrine of freedom. We have to get into the passages that explain it. Point number two is that freedom was secured by Christ's finished work on the cross. That's the thrust of Eleutherao. Now, excuse me, all of this has been point two. Point one was the definition. Point two is simply that freedom was secured by Christ's finished work on the cross. And this is all explained in Romans chapter 6. We must be free from the sin nature if we're going to be free to serve God. Even though you still have a sin nature and can still sin like any, any unbeliever, you have to be freed from it positionally before you can live for God. Now, that's the first two points, and we'll come back and cover the rest of it next Sunday morning. But this is a crucial doctrine to understand why we are saved and our freedom in Christ so that we can go forward. Freedom is the basis for going forward. You're only free to succeed to the degree that you're free to fail. And the trouble with legalism is they don't want to give anybody the freedom to fail in the spiritual life. And if you aren't free to fail, you're not free to succeed. And that's true for every category of freedom. That's one of the things that we've lost in this country in terms of our understanding of political freedom because we've bought into socialism. We don't want anybody to, to uh, fail so we want to take away the right to succeed and reduce everything to the lowest common denominator. And that's the same thing that happens in legalism. And we'll explain all of that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, that he paid the penalty in full, that we might come to uh, have an eternal relationship with you and that we might be freed from the power of the sin nature that we might live a life that brings glory and honor to you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, has never made a decision to believe in Christ alone as their Savior, that right now they would have the opportunity to do so. It doesn't involve any kind of overt action. It's simply a silent prayer where you form in your mind and thought alone the, the, the prayer, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I accept that free gift. Know that I have eternal salvation. That's all that is required. Now, Father, we pray that we might continue to think about the freedom that we have in Christ and that we might understand its implications for our daily spiritual life, that we are free to serve you and that guilt and legalism and all that goes with that are no longer issues so that we can advance to spiritual maturity without regard to the failures in our lives because we have forgiveness and we have all of the assets that you have provided for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.